Hi everyone, it's Kristen Fury with the 11 Health and Technologies podcast. In today's episode, we have with us a IBD warrior as our guest to be talking all about IBD. This particular episode is going to be in two parts. Today in part one, you are going to be learning about support and diagnosis for IBD patients. IBD is a term used to describe two conditions, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. These diseases are characterized by chronic inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract. I'd like to introduce our special guest, Amber Tresca. She has had IBD for 31 years, as well as a J-pouch for 21 years. She also created her own podcast about IBD to share many tips about her journey. Diagnosis. Most patients go through such a long journey with their diagnosis. Oftentimes, patients can be misdiagnosed and it can be a long time to find the correct diagnosis. Amber, when were you first diagnosed with IBD and how did it affect your quality of life? So I'm going to take you back in time because I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in 1989 when I was 16 years old and I was sick for quite a few weeks and which is not unlike most people. I was getting bounced around between providers and it took quite some time for me to get in to see a gastroenterologist. And now some people go years. It was only months for me, but I was really bad right away. So that was too much time, even a few months, because my ulcerative colitis uh, got so bad so quickly. And really the first thing when I finally did get to see a GI, the first thing that he did was give me a colonoscopy. And I had the colonoscopy at the actual hospital in their endoscopy suite there. And I didn't go home after that scope. He admitted me right away. And he came into my, my recovery room after the colonoscopy. And he said to me, do you know what raw hamburger looks like? And I said, well, oh, no. of, co- of course I know what that looks like. And he said, that is what the inside of your colon looks like right now. And so you're going to stay. And so I was it, admitted immediately. And that was in the fall of 19. 19- 89. And I spent more than a month there trying to get the ulcerative colitis under control at that time. And then after I was discharged, I spent a lot more time at home, you know, building up my stamina and trying to recover because, you know, you can't spend a month pretty much in bed. I walked as much as I could during my hospital stay, but still, it's not the same as, you know, going about your daily activities. And so I was a sophomore in high school at that time. So it affected my quality of life because it affected everything. It affected my social life. It affected my grades. It affected my relationship with my family. And it truly did take away all my quality of life at that time because I spent so much time trying to first get diagnosed and then get it under control in the hospital and then continue to try to recover at home to get to the point where I could go back to school. And so during that time, I spent a lot of time. I, uh, I still have the pieces that I worked on at that time. I did a lot of needlepoint. I did a lot of cross-stitching. I did a lot of coloring. I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of writing. Uh, I had a wonderful English teacher at the time, and she actually visited me in the hospital and brought me a journal. And uh, so I have some, some journal entries from that time because that was how, um, that was how you know, one of the ways that I tried to cope with it and how I, how I spent my time. Even then, um, I was, I was a writer. Um, but yeah, it, it, 
I had no quality of life for a long time because I was recovering and, and not going anywhere and obviously not doing any of the things that a normal high schooler, uh, you know, would be doing during their sophomore year. Your story sounds a lot different than many patients um, I've heard, and I've heard many because I also have IBD and I've spoken and supported many patients. So most of those patients who are admitted in the hospital have surgery. So while you were in the hospital, were they just treating the disease to try to get it under, under control? Yes. So one of the key things to remember about that time is that there were two drugs that they were using to treat ulcerative colitis. There was sulfasalazine and there was prednisone. Um, yeah. <laughs> this, it, and I like to make this point a lot because it really illustrates how far uh, treatment for IBD has come in, in the decades since I was, I was diagnosed. So I had complicating factors. I also have some uh, medication allergies. So there were certain things that um, they, uh, it took time to try because we got to the point where they were going to send me to surgery. At the time, I lived in the Detroit area, and they were going to put me in an ambulance and send me down to the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, which is one of the you know, premier centers for treatment of IBD and uh, have surgery at that time. And I, I narrowly escaped it. Um, they, I was literally given 24 hours uh, if it doesn't turn around in 24 hours and we don't see uh, a dramatic decrease in the blood loss, then we're gonna send you down to Cleveland. And um, they started me on, on the sulfasalazine and ridiculously high uh, amounts of prednisone by IV and that was a whole trip. Um, so once they started me on the sulfasalazine, but it still took several more weeks after that for things to get under control to where my team felt it was okay for me to go home. And also too, during that time, I had lost so much blood. I received a blood transfusion. Um, obviously I wasn't eating anything. I think during that time I went two weeks and they were only giving me, you know, um, TPN, uh, you know, what we now call TPN, but I don't think it's qu it was quite the same then than it is now. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, even somebody watched me when I brushed my teeth to ensure that I wasn't swallowing any water. You know, in a 16-year-old, they just really wanted to avoid that if they could at all. So it was a lot of, you know, I mean, literally waiting until the last minute. I was so, so sick. You know, I, I don't even know today if they would even do it the same. My team, you know, held off basically as long as they could, and we did manage to turn it around. After you did go home, did they put you on a medication to treat your UC, or what were the next steps? And then post that, when did you have your first surgery? So when I went home, I was still on the sulfasalazine, and I was on prednisone, and that was all that there was. There was nothing else available. I think there were some oh. off-label things. I think there were some things that were approved for Crohn's disease, but they were not approved for ulcerative colitis. You know, the same as it is today. There's certain things. Now we have drugs that they usually get approved for Crohn's disease first. And then after a little while, they try them in ulcerative colitis. And then they're usually approved for both. Although there's a few there's that are only approved for one or the other. Um, so I went home on the sulfasalazine and that, that was it because they had me on such high doses by IV that it took a very, very long time for me to taper down. And then of course, what would happen is you would start tapering it down 
you would start having bleeding again, and then you would have to bump it back up for a while, you know, and then of course you're dealing with all of the side effects of that, of that drug, which they were not, I don't know if they, if, if anyone does a great job about explaining them today, but it was certainly not done then. So it was a surprise to me to, oh no, what is happening to my face? Oh my goodness. Why do I have this acne? Where is this hair coming from? What the heck? So um, that was all lovely and no one ever discussed the mood swings with me. So here I was a teenage girl trying to do all of the things that you want to do as a teenage girl and go to school and date and have a life. And I had the mood swings and I had all of the, uh, the, the, the disfiguring side effects that come with prednisone. So we did the best that we, that we could with what we had at the time, but literally those were the only tools that were available to us to get the colitis under control. Ulcerative colitis medications are a lot different than Crohn's, or at least the approval process. I always thought that both medications went with both diseases. I don't know why. I thought that obviously I have Crohn's, but I, that brings a lot of awareness just to me, knowing that the drugs have to be approved for each disease. I know drugs that I've taken have also been used for rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis, things like that. But uh, yeah, ulcerative colitis is a whole different ballpark. Yeah, and, um, and that happens a lot too, is that um, some of the drugs get approved to treat something like psoriasis first. And there's a couple different examples of that, of the biologics especially. So sometimes when a drug gets approved for IBD, there's a few that have been specifically developed for IBD, but a lot of the time they're developed for something else. And then a secondary indication comes along, which is actually kind of cool for people with IBD because by the time that drug gets approved for us to use, it's been in use and there's all of this real life usage that has gone on. And, and, and so they've done that real life research. And so sometimes people think, well, this is a new drug. It's not always a new drug. Sometimes it's been around for quite some time. It's just a new drug being approved for, for IBD because obviously you can't use a drug that has not been approved to treat that condition yet. And the process is, is, is very long and arduous. But in any case, um, oh. yes, there are, there are so many more drugs available now. And so that's one of the main reasons that I do like to tell um, sort of my origin story is because I, I, I really think it's important for people to understand because I think it also gives you some hope to learn that only three decades ago, that's really not that long that there was so little available to you and the first thing they would do is send you to surgery, you know, and, and now there are so many things that we can try and so many people do so well on these medications and the pipeline, the amount of drugs that are being tested and are being developed right now for use in inflammatory bowel disease and for other immune mediated conditions is vast. It's very wide and very deep. And so I, I think that's something that can give people with IBD a lot of hope because we feel often very isolated and sometimes we feel as though there are not good drugs to, to treat these conditions. But I would counter that, you know, in my, yeah. in my get off my lawn kids kind of way that, um, you, know, <laughs> you know, if you knew what it was like before and you would see how far we've come and how hopeful the whole situation is. I think your story can give... Uh, more than just myself, a greater appreciation for the medications that we have now. Exactly. And now I'm thinking 
if within just a couple of decades, there was that many more medications to treat us, maybe there may be a cure in a couple more decades. Exactly. And I've seen some of the people that are involved in research every so often I'll come across one of them has put together like a, a matrix of, of the different uh, medications that are under development. And it, it, it's, it's incredible. It astounds me that there's so much in the pipeline and there's so much being worked on right now. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't help us until it comes to market. So there's that thing to consider on a lot of things. Don't, don't make it all the way through um, to phase three trials and, and then to, to market. But at the same time, if even one in 10 of them turns out to be available, um, then that's great news for the IBD community. Exactly. So how is your current health doing? You've had a J pouch for 21 years. Um, are you in remission? How, how are things for you right now? Well, I'm in what I think is probably best described as surgical remission. But okay. another thing that comes up a lot uh, uh, particularly with ulcerative colitis is that there's this idea that once you have the surgery and the surgery would be to uh, remove your colon and in my case a part of my rectum not all of my rectum I still have a little bit left um, that mm -hmm. oh well then you technically can't get colitis anymore because the definition of colitis is inflammation in the colon so if you don't have a colon you cannot get colitis. And I think that speaks to more a difficulty in the naming of the disease than it does to the actual practical things that go on. Because yes, you have surgery, um, you're no longer living with a colon, you cannot get colitis anymore, but that doesn't mean that the IBD has left the building. The IBD is still in your body, it's in your genes. There's, it, there's nowhere for it to go, you cannot eradicate it. And in some cases that means that the body finds a different inflammatory pathway and, you know, it'll, it'll just look for something else to attack. Um, so, so I, I could still, and they told me this when I, when I had my surgery and I had my surgeries in 1999 and there, we know a lot more about J pouches. Now I would say we maybe don't know as much as I would hope that we did in this time, but um, we know a little bit more. They even told me at that time, that I could still go on to develop other autoimmune conditions that are associated with IBD and that I could still develop all of the extra intestinal manifestations that go along with IBD. So even then, and, and this is also true because I had a, a, a wonderful team. I had an amazing surgeon um, uh, taking care of me and you know, he knew what was up. And so yes, Technically, you could say surgical remission. Now, does weird stuff happen? Absolutely. <laughs> weird stuff comes up all of the time. Um, you know, and, you know, neurological problems, uh, urological problems. And even now, sometimes my doctors kind of throw up their hands and go, well, you do have the IBDs. So this is probably related to that. And we just kind of do the best that we can. But Obviously, when you look at what my life was like before I had J-pouch surgery and after, it is a vast, vast improvement. So I'm a big proponent of J-pouch surgery when, when, when people are candidates because thinking about someone who was 
in the hospital on and off, receiving blood transfusions on prednisone on and off, and then someone who went on to have a career, have children, get married, you know, do all of those things. And I don't know that they would have been possible without having that JPOT surgery and without um, getting into surgical remission. It sounds like you have loads of experience <laughs> with everything that you're doing. So if something pops up, you have knowledge about that. If not, you have someone that might know exactly what's going on and um, you have a great positive outlook, which I can already tell just from talking to you just a little bit. And it seems like just in this podcast, you're going to educate so many people. So I, th I thank you for giving oh, us all this you. loaded information. Yeah. Well, that's, that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> support. Having support during difficult times in many aspects of your life is important. As patients living with a chronic illness, it's vital they have the empathy and support from their doctors, family, and even a community of others going through similar challenging obstacles. How important is support for you in your journey? Do you have good support always from your medical team or did you ever have to seek another team you fit best? So support is obviously it's really key because nobody can fight IBD alone. It, it, it's, it's too difficult and, and nobody should have to. So when you don't have a great medical team, it, it, IBD can get out of control really, really quickly. And, and obviously we meet patients all of the time um, to whom that has unfortunately happened. And the symptoms, the ones that you have in your digestive system and then outside of your digestive system just really can make your life so, so miserable. So it's super important that you have doctors that understand your IBD and how it affects your life. And I've always been really fortunate. And, and, and sometimes I, I literally don't know how I sort of fell into finding great doctors, <laughs> but I've always had um, great doctors helping me on my journey. But something that um, affected me several at several different points was actually having access to care. So prior to the Affordable Care Act, and again, I'm going back to the way back when, the, you know, the, the, the get off my lawn, um, I went for times when I did not have health insurance and I fell into that pre-existing condition um, situation, which is fairly, you know, ridiculous. Um, and so there was times when I had to pay out of pocket to see my doctors and then also for my medication. And I also took jobs based on whether or not I could get health insurance. And of course, that's not something, I mean, you talk to young people, you talk to people starting out in their careers or even in the mid part of their careers, like choosing a job based on health insurance, that's usually not your, your first consideration, but it had to be at that time. And, and I think it still is for a lot of people. And so the time when I, when it got too far and I needed to go and have surgery, I actually went around to several different area surgeons. And what's so interesting is that they all had different opinions. I mean, everybody agreed that I needed surgery. Like it was just, um, I had precancerous cells in my colon. Like, it, like there was no coming back from that. It had to happen. But they all had different ways yeah. that they were going to go about it. And so I actually had to sit down and, and you know, go through all of this and, and think about who was I going to have do my surgery, which is really a very pr privileged place to be. Um, but I did have health insurance, but 
I chose a surgeon that was not covered under my plan. So I still ended up paying a lot, a lot out of pocket, but I chose him because he had trained going, going back to, you know, IBD centers and he had trained with some of the best surgeons in IBD. And he told me that, of course, and then I was able to look that information up and see who he trained under and, and, and understand that he was going to be the best choice. And he, I mean, really, he was my only choice. Yet, I had to pay so much money. Um, to, but in the end, this was the right choice. I went into debt to have my surgeries, which is not uncommon. That's not something you know, that's special or different. It happens to people with IBD all of the time. But it was more important to me that I had the right team. I had the right person doing my surgery because I knew that the IBD wasn't going anywhere. I was only 26 years old. I had hopefully a lot of years that I was going to be living with this tree pouch and I wanted it to be done right. I wanted it done right the first time and I wanted to recover and enter into surgical remission. And of course that, that did come to pass. Um, so in the end it was the right choice, um, for me, even if, uh, you know, it, it was, um, it was a bit challenging from a financial standpoint. That sounds kind of like my story, but the only thing is I went through seven doctors before they decided that my Crohn's had gotten so bad that I needed the surgery the same day I saw them. So I think, I think it could be great. It would have been great if I found a doctor that, uh, right away had a plan. Um, so I always, always tell patients to advocate for themselves. If your medical team isn't giving you what you need, go find another one. You've got to move on. Yeah. You do. And I didn't do that with the first doctor. I kind of uh, let my diagnosis of celiac um, kind of make my disease worse. A year of gluten-free diet on celiac when I had Crohn's disease made me even skinnier. And by the time I reached the doctor and surgeon that saved my life, that's when they, they decided, Let, let's just mm-hmm. do the surgery. But like you, my surgeon, uh, I chose the surgeon that wasn't covered. And he was out of network. And I, I just finished paying off his bills last oh, week. Oh, congratulations. And I had the surgery wow. seven years ago. <laughs> so it was worth it. And he is at Cedar sinai in Beverly Hills. He did his resident, residency at Mount Sinai. He's head of colorectal surgery. And he saved my life. So sometimes you have to make those decisions. And it... It, they turn out for the great most of the time if it's if it's something like this. But after this became permanent and they found a medication, I've been better. So I, I think medical teams make the whole difference of your experience with IBD. So I'm glad that you, I mean, you have a lot of years on me, but you've discovered what it's like to have great support and um, kind of shout it to the world because everybody needs to Absolutely. So my second question, how did you get involved with the IBD community? I see you advocating for IBD on Twitter, on Instagram, um, your handle at about IBD. But was this at the early stages? I know you were diagnosed before all of this social media came out, but did you seek support groups? How did you become a part of the community? Right. Yeah. It was so different in the way back when before times. And I didn't know anyone else who had IBD when I was diagnosed. Um, My medical team 
kind of threw a couple of people at me at the time who had IBD, but uh, you know, there wasn't anybody, it's, it's not really like you're going to meet somebody in the hospital and form a connection. And, you know, and I didn't know anybody obviously who was a teenager, you know, I mean, they introduced me to a couple of adults. Uh, and, and in one case it was a much older woman and it was a little bit like, okay, what am I supposed to do here? You know, <laughs> you know this person, well, this person doesn't understand me and I don't understand them. So what are we going to do? So really didn't have um, support in that, in the way back when before times. And I didn't know anyone else who had IBD when I was diagnosed. Um, my medical team kind of threw a couple of people at me at the time who had IBD, but uh, you know, there wasn't anybody, it's, it's not really like you're going to meet somebody in the hospital and form a connection. And, you know, and I didn't know anybody obviously who was a teenager, you know, I mean, they introduced me to a couple of adults. Uh, and, and in one case it was a much older woman and it was a little bit like, okay, what am I supposed to do here? You know, <laughs> you know this person, well, this person doesn't understand me and I don't understand them. So what are we going to do? So really didn't have, um, support in that way at that time. And at that time, what's now the Crohn's and colitis foundation was actually called the national foundation for ileitis and colitis. And so I was aware of their existence, but there wasn't a way for me to connect or I didn't know how to connect again. I was, you know, I was a child, I was a teenager and it wasn't like it is now where you go to your physician's office and they've got handouts and different things and they can connect you um, with groups. It, it, it just wasn't, it just wasn't that way. So it wasn't until I reached the crisis point at 10 years after my diagnosis that I really started looking for support online. And even then it was different than it is today. There was no social media, but I found message boards, if you can believe that, message boards where you would go oh. in and you would type, <laughs> you know, you would type in your message and then reload it <laughs> to see the next person responding to you. So that was what was available at the time. But I started getting involved in those kinds of groups. And I realized that I kind of had my head in the sand a little bit about my disease when I met people who were at different stages in their IBD journeys and had different levels of knowledge. And in the 10 years uh, since I was diagnosed, there, there, even, even in that short amount of time, there was so much more understanding how IBD affects the body. So, and something, it still happens today, but if you can think about when I was diagnosed, you would tell people that you had ulcerative colitis and they assumed that that was because I had a nervous condition and that somehow I made myself sick. So it was really challenging to find support and because after you tell a couple of people about your disease and you kind of get that reaction, you, you know, you don't usually keep talking about it. So, <laughs> you know, you just kind of, you know, stick with what you have and um, don't try to go outside of your family and friends for, for support and try to get involved anywhere else. But it was then that I realized I had these precancerous changes in my colon. Uh, I didn't know enough about this disease and it was dangerous. Like it could have killed me easily. And so at that point I started looking into research, understanding more. Obviously I needed to understand as much as I could about the surgery before I had it and what the outlook was. I wanted to know what, what the rest of my life would be like. Um, but I spent a long time in this mindset where I just 
I took my medication. My medication didn't work that well. And I thought there wasn't anything else that we could do. But then I started looking into the things that had changed since my diagnosis. And I, I, I learned that I had been operating under sort of a false pretense that whole time. And, and that there was more help. There was more available. But I had to have gone looking for it myself. You know, no one was going to, to, to bring that information to me. But I never did go looking. Um, but, uh, you know, it wasn't so long after my surgery that an opportunity came along to write about IBD at a website that was then called about.com. And there's been several changes to the site over the years. It's been um, 20 years now because I started writing for them in 2000 and now they're called very well health. So I've been involved with the community for a very long time and sort of um, come along as the internet has changed. So social media has come along Um, so I've gone from just, you know, sitting at my computer and writing to embracing the, the different ways that we can now connect with the community and the IBD community has gotten larger, um, over the years and which is wonderful. People are a lot more open today because now we can reach more patients and in that way we can hopefully prevent the isolation, uh, that, that those of us who were diagnosed so long ago went through. And we can work on the stigma that goes along with IBD and we can help patients understand earlier what their choices are and how well they can um, uh, manage their, their disease with the right team in place. I think, again, this brings light to a greater appreciation for social media and the community that we have because there are those like you who had nothing. They couldn't just go to Instagram and ask someone, hey, I'm about to have this surgery. What's going to happen? And get a message back mm-hmm. within two minutes. So I, I'm i super thankful for it. I didn't accept it, my surgery enough to choose social media, but now I am a huge advocate to try to reach those people who don't accept it so they can use the resources that are available. You didn't have any resources. Right now we have so many people sharing their story. All you have to do is look through their profile to see one certain topic that you're looking for. Exactly, and everybody does their advocacy in a different way. So at this point, you are going to be able to find someone whose disease journey is similar to yours or whose lifestyle and interests are similar to yours or whose outlook on medication, surgery, nutrition, whatever it is, is similar to yours. So that you can find that person and connect with them and the two of you can can uh, work through the situation together, especially if they're in a different point in their disease journey and you can learn from them. So um, yeah, it's, it's really very wonderful. This now concludes part one of our IBD episode. To hear more about the symptoms of IBD and how to be your own self-advocate, tune in for our part two. 11 Health School is to support, educate, and care for chronically ill patients with our Smart Care platform. To learn more about 11 Health and how to get connected with us, visit us at www.11health.com. You can also find us on our social media, Twitter and Instagram at 11 Health and Tech, and Facebook at 11 Health.